Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasad Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Okay, so welcome to this podcast, my first podcast, um, for the Society of the History of Children and Youth. I'm Dr. Emily Manktelow. You'll know when I'm talking because I'm the one with the English accent. And I'm here with Professor Joy Schultz. And you'll know when she's talking because she sounds like this. Hi. Yes, I have the boring American accent that you must listen to today. <laughs> um, so we are having an exciting conversation today about Joy's book, Hawaiian by Birth. Missionary Children, Bicultural Identity, and U.S. Colonialism in the Pacific. And I want to start, Joy, by talking about this brilliant cover. Um, can you tell us anything? Obviously, that's a really stupid place to start for a podcast because the people can't see it. But, you know, <laughs> we've, we've done Google image search, so let's get on that, folks. Yes. Um, so, can you tell yeah, us so, a bit about the cover? Sure. So, for those who may be unfamiliar with early Hawaiian history, um, the Hawaiian kingdom was united in the early 1800s by Kamehameha, the great king Kamehameha. And it was shortly after his death in 1819 that the first U.S. missionaries arrived and brought children with them and immediately had children upon their arrival. Um, and that's kind of the beginning of my story. But this front image is, of course, of early U.S. missionaries, and that's Hiram Bingham standing and preaching to indigenous Hawaiians. And the kind of the concept of the book was to write about the whole Hawaiian U.S. experience through the eyes of missionary children. And so I noticed there that you mentioned uh, that the missionaries arrived to Hawaii with their children and then immediately started having more children, which is definitely my experience of missionaries as well. They uh, were very good at reproducing. Um, and obviously that is where <laughs> our, our interests um, intersect in the sense that we're both historians of missionary families and missionary children. Um, I'm wondering, uh, I'm going to ask you if there's any particular anecdotes about missionary children that are your favorites that you'd like to share before we get down into the, you know, proper intellectual conversation. Oh, wow. There are so many. What was fascinating about this topic was that I read their school papers and their letters to each other and their letters to their parents and their private journals. And they were just kids. They're funny. They're smart. They are disobedient at times. They play tricks on each other and on their parents and the native Hawaiians at times. <laughs> I think probably my favorite story or one of them is there were a family of four brothers and a native Hawaiian who had known the missionary dad and had watched the boys grow up 
once told them that the four of them put together could not equal their father. (laughs) And I think that kind of sums up how people felt about the missionary children and how they felt about themselves. Um, Now that's not, I guess, as funny now that it's coming out of my mouth, but. (laughs) Well, I laugh. So either we're both horrible people or it resonates in some way with how we all kind of try and measure up against our parents. Exactly. <laughs> and you have to remember that the missionaries that went to Hawaii sold everything they owned. They mm-hmm. were never going back. They were going to do whatever it took to convert the Hawaiian population. And so the children that were born into those families oftentimes were sent away, sent to boarding school, and really did have this ideal in their heads as to what an adult, a Christian adult looked like. And it was their parents. Yeah. Cause they didn't actually have that much contact with their parents in some ways, which um, links, I think quite nicely with what you say in your book about uh, the, the emotional side of, of um, their relationship with their parents and how that structured the way they thought about Hawaii as a physical space and a political space. Um, But I feel like we're maybe running a bit ahead of ourselves and maybe we should give the listeners um, a a short sort of synopsis, if you wouldn't mind, of the book as a whole. Sure. So at the time that you and your research is most active, the early 19th century and British imperialism is the time when Americans are really trying to copy what the British evangelicals are doing. And yeah, the, the place, yeah, yeah. the place <laughs> that that's, yes, I know the place that that seems to occur at least most profoundly is in the Pacific and the Hawaiian islands in particular because Americans were really the first to have an amount of foreign influence that was greater than the British and the French and others who are attempting to gain, you know, toeholds in that region, footholds. And so the American missionaries had a disproportionate amount of political influence over the monarchy. And that's going to continue to grow throughout the 19th century. And the book really culminates when the children are adults and they begin to view that missionary influence on society, in education, in religion, in politics, beginning to fade. And that's when really they are some of the most profound advocates of revolution, of overthrowing the monarchy. And a lot of people don't know Queen Liliuokalani was the last monarch of Hawaii and essentially abdicated the throne after a revolution led by missionary children who were adults at that time. So the book tries to portray really a childhood through adulthood metamorphoses in terms of how does a child become a politically active revolutionary against their what they consider their homeland, which was the Hawaiian Islands. Yeah, and and you make that um, connection really vivid um, in your writing, which is so beautiful, by the way. Um, when you when you talk about how the missionary children understood the environment and kind of had this connection with the environment that that kind of went through their parents, but also bypassed their parents, was that mm-hmm. something that really jumped out at you from the records you read? 
Yes. And that was my favorite chapter to write. I was just, I felt like I was there when I read about their descriptions of the islands and what they enjoyed doing. And of course, the idea of being barefoot or swimming or surfing to a child sounds amazing. And it sounds amazing now to us, but to their parents, it was horrifying. And so this idea that the children explored the land and, you know, really had great amounts of freedom because their parents were always busy (laughs) with the, yes, it, it just led to this love of nature of the environment. But then you contrast that with the parents' desire to keep their children away from Native Hawaiians, segregated, not allowed to speak to them, not allowed to learn the language. And you have then this really complex relationship where missionary children do view the land as theirs, but they almost view the people on that land as intruders. And it's just, it's very complicated. And I mean, that's a huge generalization, obviously. And in the book, I try to tease out um, areas of resistance, even within the white missionary, missionary children culture. Mm, yeah, I mean, and then there's this dislocation where the children have created this this bond, if you like, with the natural environment, even though it's ambivalent and complicated, as you say, uh, and then are often sent back to America for their schooling and education and have this huge rupture in their lives. How does that come across in the records that you've been looking at? Mm-hmm. This was really one of the reasons I chose this topic. I had been teaching at a private college where I had had a lot of students who had grown up on the missionary field and were being sent back to the United States without their families to go to college. And so I knew a lot of these students and I found them just really fascinating to talk to. And they were very, very critical of the United States which of course uh, the United States or Americans within the United States had completely funded their life um, (laughs) growing up on the missionary field. So it was just, it just got me thinking and asking so many questions. And then when I read about the missionary children from Hawaii who were sent to the United States to go to elite colleges, usually in New England, they hated it. They hated the United States and their criticisms of Americans are just, they're ironic, they are harsh. Mm-hmm. And they have a ring of truth. And almost every child that was sent to the United States wanted to go back to the islands, but it was very expensive to do so, and not all of them could. And so I followed a few of those children throughout their lives in the United States as naturalized citizens, and almost all of them to their dying days wished they were back in the islands. It was fascinating. Mm, wow. I mean, I found working on missionary children that. It's surprising how often in my life people come up to me and say, oh, I'm a child of missionaries. Mm -hmm. And then I never really quite know what to do with that because, you know, the missionary children that I'm looking at are from 200 years ago. uh, And and I'm not quite sure how to um, deal with that difficult legacy of mission in the face of people who have grown up in that context. I mean, have you had experiences like that as well? Well, I have a great amount of respect for children who grow up on the mission field because they are, they're asked to become adults, I think, at a rather young age in terms of taking the independence and the leaving home. Even today, children are still sent to boarding schools. And I just think that there is a maturity that happens, but it's incomplete because, um, 
they just haven't wrestled with all the issues that they will as adults. And so it's, I feel for them in some respects, but I also admire them in other respects. And I do think it's important to point out that the missionary children were fascinating, intelligent, independent Mm -hmm. people that had a tremendous amount to offer and oftentimes just struggled to find out where that was because their parents wanted them to be missionaries. And so there's this, this drama of, do I break my parents' heart? Do I disobey them? Do I go against their wishes to do what I really want to do? And so I, I definitely think that missionary children need to be heard. And I think that that's part of the, the book is that, you know, children can be a field of colonialism in and of themselves. We put so much of ourselves into our children. Our parents put into us, we put into our children, schools, everybody is inputting, inputting, inputting into children. And so I, I try to wrestle with that as its own separate field as well. And that's just really well put because something that that I I, um, sort of gleaned something that you found challenging in the book is how to give the children agency as children. And of course, um, the listeners to this podcast will be particularly interested in that as we're all historians or scholars of childhood. Um, So could you talk a little bit about um, how you sort of dealt with that particular challenge and then maybe some of the other challenges that you encountered doing this research and writing the book? I would definitely encourage historians of childhood and youth to consider integrating missionary children into their fields of study, particularly because in the 19th century, for example, uh, missionaries had to be highly educated. And as a result, they wanted their children to be highly educated. And so the written record that they left behind is enormous. Mm -hmm. And I think our field can only grow and become more credible to the extent that we find sources that are written by children. And we do not want to impose our adult ideas and philosophies and beliefs on an eight-year-old. We just don't want to do that. And so we need to find those sources. And missionary children wrote extensively, especially ones that were in boarding school, the ones that were sent to Punahou and Honolulu. And they also had their own student newspapers. In the United States, probably in the UK as well, it was popular in kind of these classical elite schools to publish your own handwritten newspaper Mm -hmm. and read it to your classmates every week and to have dialogue back and forth, arguments through this newspaper. So the sources are out there. They really are. You just have to be creative and find them. Yeah, and that, I mean, maybe actually you could tell us a little bit more about the types of sources that you used for this book, because there's there's so rich and there's so much detail. Um, I'm sure listeners would be interested to know what, what um, breadth of sources you used. Well, in the case of Hawaii, the Hawaiian Mission Children's Society was a humanitarian or benevolent group that formed really early on to support each other and to support missionaries going to other parts of Polynesia. But they, in turn, left a rich written language and written source primary sources, both in Hawaiian and in English, but they also still exist as an organization. So they left behind this record that they have then preserved in an archive that they control in Honolulu. And it you can go there and you can research all of these missionaries and to the extent that their children left written records, their children. So I started there. 
And I, I mean, there's so much I didn't even get to. So you, there's mm -hmm. so much there that's still available to be mined. And so that would be a number one um, point of contact for anyone who wants to get into the minds of 19th century children. And then Punahou School, uh, that's the school that our former President Barack Obama graduated from. And it still exists as well. And, um, you know, so I got to read the school newspapers and some of the term papers and things like that that are in the archives. And so schools that are still around that are historic in their founding, they probably are going to have archives that have school newspapers and papers. So that would be another point to maybe research and start with. And, and you mentioned that the sources are in Hawaiian and English, which, of course, is so interesting because, as you said earlier, missionary children were not allowed to speak the indigenous languages quite often. But nonetheless, they did learn them. Do you have any insights into um, how that happened, but also the debates around that question? Yes. So that's a really great question. First of all, almost every missionary child had a native Hawaiian nanny. And some even had wet nurses who were Hawaiian. And so just this idea that your earliest memories are being formed by your primary caregiver, who is a native Hawaiian. And then as you grow up, you're told that that person is degraded and dirty. I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling what yeah. that might do to a young brain. But you hear the language spoken to you. And as we know from, you know, studies, scientific studies, children begin picking up language in the womb. So it's not a surprise that they learn the language despite their parents' best intentions. Yeah, I mean, I found um, in my in my research on missionary families in Tahiti, this interesting case um, to do with my, my second book on Reverend Simpson and the um, potential abuse that he perpetrated there, that there was this really interesting slippage in language where when he was saying something um, that was totally, uh, you know, um, uh, taboo or uh, inappropriate, it was often transcribed in Tahitian. And I've always been interested in whether they spoke more in Tahitian than we know, or whether it was uh, this idea that deviant language had to be Tahitian because they saw the Tahitians as deviant, whether there was a kind of yes. use of language in that way or unconscious. And um, so, I mean, the issue of language is very rich with missionary children and missionary families more broadly. I loved your book, by the way, Gender, Power, and Sexual Abuse in the Pacific, and your studies on Tahitians and the missionary children that grew up in Tahiti, I mean, you gave me so many ideas and just kind of spurred me on as I was thinking about this issue. But what you found was, yeah, the, the association of deviance with an indigenous culture and that there was no way that that could possibly be part of the white culture. And I do wonder if subconsciously, too, people devolved into speaking Tahitian when they were doing something that they maybe knew they shouldn't be doing, like Reverend Simpson, for example. Yeah, and I mean, it's frustrating that we'll we'll never know that uh, because know. we have to look through, you know, look at the past through these mediated sources. But I think, you know, what we can do, and, and here I mean we as in literally you and I, is we have this opportunity to kind of take these case studies and really go into them in such depth that we can at least start to answer some of these questions or, or at the very least know what kinds of questions we want to ask. The hard thing about Hawaii, and just to be honest, is that 
you know, native language studies are revived in the islands, which is fabulous. Mm -hmm. And new publications have really gone back and told old stories from the native perspective by reading native language newspapers from the early 1800s, from the time the missionaries brought the printing press. But um, it's almost passe to talk about white missionaries, even though I focus on the children, which no one has done before. Mm -hmm. It's almost like we don't want to talk about, you know, white children in the Hawaiian Islands. We want to talk about native children. And I do too. It's just that, um, you know, again, you're going back to sources. And mm -hmm. my next research project that I'm working on now, I really want to get into the native sources as well in terms of native education um, during this time period. But it's challenging because I'm not um, native Hawaiian. And so there's a little bit of, I would say, it's it's almost like indigenous studies is still trying to decide who can speak for it. And mm -hmm. so I've run into that just a little bit. And I'm still trying to navigate my way because I don't want to speak for other people. But I do want to look at the sources and see what they say. Yeah, absolutely. And and that um that what you just said there about not wanting to speak for others um is something I also came across in my book looking at the survivors or victims of of sexual abuse um mm -hmm. in the Pacific that I felt like I didn't want to speak for them, um uh, but I wanted to speak with them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know there's this passage of time between us and I think that can be a helpful way of of dealing with these really um current vibrant issues that we deal with and in what you've just been talking about you know it's a reminder that missionaries were part of imperial and colonial systems that you know we can't entirely disassociate them from and that mm -hmm. this this issue of missionary parents building up these dichotomies between you know the so-called savage and the so-called civilized was very much part of that creation of colonial culture and I suppose um just to turn that random comment into a question uh how does I mean that how does that play out in the American context because of course America has this very ambivalent history of understanding itself as being non-imperial as being anti-imperial and yet engaging in maybe what we could more broadly call colonialism. I mean, does the, does the missionary... <laughs> really? <laughs> We're ambivalent about that? <laughs> okay. <Ooh. Second. laughs> yes. I, what does the case study of Hawaii um, reveal about that sort of broader issue? Well, let me give you a current event and then I'll back up. So I don't know if you remember about a year and a half to two years ago, there was massive flooding and earthquake. Puerto Rico was extremely damaged and yeah. um, there was flooding and a hurricane in Texas. And then people were wondering why, why, why we are helping people from Puerto Rico. We should be focusing all of our energies on Texas. Yeah. And, you know, people in the media had to remind Americans that Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. So they are a territory of the United States. So there's just kind of yeah. that. It's not even just ambivalent. It's ignorant. And just, you know, Hawaii is a state, but it was forcibly taken. And even the U.S. government acknowledged that it was taken unjustly. And so you have, you, you have this major political group in the Hawaiian Islands that really want to restore 
that indigenous rule and then you have americans that think they're crazy so or don't even know about it and if they do then they're they just write them off as deluded and i think that part of that is just not knowing our own history and part of it is that history not being told in a truthful manner i guess yeah and i mean that highlights doesn't it going you know but going right back to what you were saying that by examining this this moment of encounter and contact and colonialism in the kind of forensic detail that you've done in this book is vital and is important not as an alternative to indigenous histories but as a way of understanding you know how things have happened in the present uh, and indeed the recent past that have made um, indigenous studies so important um, so the, we need to look at both sides of that really complicated encounter and the power dynamics behind it yes exactly what you just said <laughs> brilliant <laughs> Um, so I wanted to uh, ask you, uh, just sort of before we wrap up, whether there was anything that you just couldn't fit into the book that you would really have liked to, because, you know, we all struggle with these word limits, or, well, maybe I'm speaking for myself here, as you can probably tell from these questions that are getting longer and longer, I, I am a verbose person, and I find in my <laughs> writing, you know, there's always something that doesn't make the cut. Is there anything in particular that you um, would have liked to have put in uh, more about in your book? I think that what I want to do is continue the story and I want to continue the story and look at education in Hawaii in the revolutionary period and then during the territorial period. So that period in the 1890s through the early 20th century, it really, it fits in with um, American educational enterprises in the colonial Philippines and even in Puerto Rico. And Mm -hmm. I just, I want to look at the, it's, it's almost like, um, in the United States during the progressive era where missionary endeavors didn't change, they just changed in name and they became more um, humanitarian and education oriented, but still very Christian civilizing, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I wanna, I just wanna continue the story and especially look at textbooks that were given um, to the schools to use during the period of the Republic and the territorial period. I just, I, I, there's just so much more, as you know, in any topic that you could, you could talk about, but education is really kind of important to me just from teaching a very diverse student population at a community college. I just think how you learn your history is just so important. How it's given to you is so important. What you do with it obviously is, is equally or more important, but I don't think we've done the best job of giving students uh, history. Yeah, I think that's really true and and very insightful in the sense that, you know, the politics of memory is so important and something that students, whether it's community college in America or the undergraduates I teach at Royal Holloway, who are all wonderful, of course, um, but (laughs) that trying to unpick the way that history is used in the present. And and, I mean, you're talking to someone who sits here in the middle of the Brexit debates happening, you know, in the UK, in which that memory of empire is being mobilized in these really nostalgic and concerning ways and you know it's so much our job to give uh, students the tools to critically deconstruct those messages whether they agree or disagree um, as long as they have the tools to come to their own conclusions about it in a well-informed manner I mean that's the crucial thing isn't it 
It is. And I think you're absolutely right. We're living in a season on both sides of the Atlantic where there is sort of a resurgence of um, national nationalist based patriotism and um, protectionism. And I think that some of that, you know, is going to work its way through the political process and be resolved. But at you know, the heart of it, I just, I want my students to see what happens in history when, when people treat other people as unequal to themselves. That's, that's where, that's where the problems of history occur is when we view each other as um, expendable. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, well, I mean, that feels like a very serious note on the, <laughs> to end our conversation. Um, so I will ask you this. Where can the good people listening to this podcast uh, get your book? Because obviously now they will be very keen to do so. Well, thank you, Emily. They can obviously order it on Amazon.com or from the University of Nebraska Press. And I would throw that question back to you. <laughs> Deviancy in Tahiti among missionaries and missionary children. Where can they read more about that? Yep, so that book was published by Bloomsbury uh, in 2018, so last summer, and uh, is at the moment horrendously overpriced, so I would say wait for the paperback, which obviously, don't tell my publisher I said that. Um, because, um, thank you so much, Joy, for talking to us about Hawaiian by birth, missionary children, bicultural identity, and U.S. colonialism in the Pacific. Thank you, Emily. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online at shcy.org.